what a glorious truth we just sang about. That it is enough that Jesus died, it's enough for me. The reason we can stand and sing and celebrate on a morning like this is because we've understood the glorious truth of the gospel, that the end of the scripture, the end of the story isn't Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We're grateful that with the bad news that we're all sinners. The bad news that the truth about our situation is that we're hopeless without Christ. We're hopelessly lost in our sins. If the story ended there, it would be a tragedy. But this is where the book of Romans begins to turn. This is where we get to begin to celebrate the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That Jesus Christ is the reason that we can stand forgiven and that the story of our sin isn't the end. That if it boiled down to us being able to save ourselves, there's nothing that we could do to be saved. But Jesus Christ has made a way. And what we're going to find is that the righteousness of God, this is how the word of God will put it in Romans today, that the righteousness of God has been revealed. And it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And so as we get into this study of Scripture, as we get into this section, I want you to see that the first two words in verse 21 of Romans 3 are but now. Aren't you glad for those two words? This is more than a literary or transition that we see on the page. This is a historical transition. This is the moment in history when everything changed for you and for me and for anyone that has ever lived, the moment that we begin to bring Jesus Christ into the equation, the moment that we start to talk about our redemption, the moment we start to talk about forgiveness and grace, there are words in this text that, praise God, they have entered in after those words, but now. But now speaks to our rescue. But now speaks to our salvation. I remember when I was a kid, I, I was the runt of the litter. And I was the one that always got picked on, and I was grateful for an older brother. I'll never forget one day I was about to get my butt whipped. There was no question about it. And I was grateful for the but now moment when my older brother Charlie walked around the corner and saw what the kids were doing. And he rescued me. He rescued me. That's what we have in this Savior. A rescuer. A deliverer. And because Christ enters this text and enters history in this moment, the world now stands defeated. Christ has appeared and everything changes. And I want you to know that today isn't just for those that are lost. I told you last week that the gospel is something that we have to preach to ourselves every day. Because we can't forget what saved us. It's easy to actually depend on Christ in a moment in time in history and then go back to a work salvation. It's possible 
for you to in one moment believe that because of Christ our sins are forgiven, but then immediately to fall back into the idea that now that I'm forgiven and now that I'm saved, I've got to start changing myself. I've got to start doing something to please God. I've got to start earning what God has given to me. And so we got to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because if we're not careful, we will confuse the world with the gospel that we are presenting. The Moravians, now today known for most of us in Winston-Salem, that's where we get our sugar cookies, amen? What do you call those things? They're not sugar cookies. Are they Moravian? Whatever, they're delish is what I know, all right? But I want you to know that there was a time in Moravian history where they were a missionary force. They were sending missionaries around the world, and they realized there was a great need in Greenland and Iceland. Many of you may not know it, but it's so close to the Arctic Circle that that many months out of the year, it's so cold and frozen there that they have whole communities of, of Eskimos, just like we think about in places like Alaska. Many of these people lived in remote villages that were so remote, they'd not heard the gospel, so the Moravians sent out their missionaries to go preach the gospel to them. What they found were a people that were steeped in sin. A people that, for the most part, were alcoholics. Rough as you could get. Their language was rough. The way they acted towards each other was rough. And when you throw in the alcoholism, it was just a very difficult place. When those missionaries got there... They were so overwhelmed with the sin of the people that you know what they began to do? Rather than sharing Jesus, they went into this place and basically preached against the sin. And they did what we should do. They started with sin, but they never got to the but now of chapter 3, verse 21. They spoke about and and gave these people only Romans 1 through 3.20. And you see, we're guilty of the same thing today. Because we love to talk to people or at people about their sin, don't we? We want to argue, we want to debate, we want to tell them that they're wrong. We want to point out their sin and and we want desperately for them to agree with us that the lifestyle, that the things that they're choosing are wrong. And so all they get from us is the pointed finger many times that they need to change. And all the while in their heart, you know what they're asking themselves? Number one, why are Christians so mean? But number two... Would somebody tell me how to change? Would somebody share with me hope, truth, beyond the fact that I'm a sinner? There was another wave of missionaries, of Moravian missions, that came in after the first wave of missionaries. And recognizing that these people were keenly aware of their sinfulness. When no one shared the gospel, they got right to salvation in Christ. And you know what those people said? They said, why didn't the first people tell us about this gospel? Because if they had told us about this gospel, we would have believed. You see, if we don't study the gospel ourselves preach it to ourselves every day, we can very easily end up with the wrong message. We don't mean to. It's not our intent. 
But to preach the whole gospel is to get to the but now. Because this is where the gospel gets glorious. This is where worship begins to well up within us. And so there's four things I want to share with you today about these verses that I'm going to read. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, some translations say, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a, underline this, propitiation. I'll come back to that. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. You may not realize it, but this is the epicenter of the gospel. This is one of the most important paragraphs in all of the scripture. Because it teaches us first the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in this text. And many of you say, well, what is the righteousness of God? What is he talking about? He's not talking about simply the fact that God alone is righteous, but he's saying that God's righteousness is given to you and to me by saying that the righteousness of God is made manifest. What it means is there is a moment in our life where we can't stand in the presence of God because of our sinfulness. We serve a God that must punish sin. We serve a God that we fall out of fellowship with, out of relationship with, because our sin separates us from him. We serve a God that has to punish sin. God in his righteousness can't ignore it. He can't act as if it never happened. He can't lie about our condition or our situation. We serve a God that is 100% righteous. But the word says that the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's been manifested. He's saying it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Let me tell you what he's saying. When we get to this point in Scripture, Jesus is reminding us that salvation, number one, is a, is a divine accomplishment. Salvation is not something that man does. Salvation is something that God does. 
righteousness that we have is not given to us through the law. It says that the righteousness of God is apart from the law. What that means is what Romans has been saying to us. No man can be saved because he obeys the law. Because once man breaks the law, he's a lawbreaker. Once man sins, he's a sinner, right? And so nobody can be saved through the law. The law condemns. And he says that righteousness does not come through the law. It comes from God. And folks, I want you to hear me today. God does not make us righteous. Because the reality is we are not righteous, right? Can you undo what you've done? He doesn't make us righteous. You know what he he does? He declares us righteous. That means that there was a moment in time when God, because of faith, our faith, our trust, our believing in him, there was a moment where we asked him for forgiveness, where we believed that he was the Messiah who died on the cross for our sins. We placed all of our hope in him, that his death paid the price for our sins, and we surrendered to him. In that moment, because of our faith in Christ, the Bible says That God declared you and me, if we're in Christ, not guilty. Now let those words sink in a second. Are we guilty? Guilty, guilty. Are we sinners? So the question becomes, how can a righteous God declare sinners to be forgiven? To be not guilty. Enter Jesus the Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed and it's a divine accomplishment. Not a human accomplishment, a divine accomplishment. We didn't obey the law, we broke the law. So this righteousness is given to us apart from the law. And it is provided by God, that it says there, and it is received by faith. This righteousness is not provided by us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't come to God with our life in order and say, give me what I deserve. It's not provided by us. It is provided by God, and it is received by faith. Let me tell you something about the Bible. Many people see the Bible as two different stories, and they're really not. The Bible is one consistent story about how God would save the world from sin. It's a letter of hope from beginning to end. I remember standing in a class one day and and beginning to teach a lesson. I asked a very simple question. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? I thought it was a simple question. I ended up having to teach for the next hour and a half trying to change people's minds on their perception of how someone in the Old Testament was saved because they thought that God had a plan A in the Old Testament. And God's plan in the Old Testament was he would give the law so that people could be saved if only they what? If they obeyed the law. But you know what the reality was? Even before he gave the law, men were already what? They were already sinners. Even without the law, they violated their conscience. They knew what was right and they did what was wrong. And the reality was that when God gave the law, he gave it to man to show man that he was already condemned. That he was already in desperate need of a savior. In the Old Testament, you were saved the same way that you are in the New Testament. Faith. 
It said that Abraham was counted righteous. You know how he was counted righteous? Because he believed God and he placed his faith in God. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. You may not realize it, but there's a very important verse that runs throughout Scripture. And it basically says this. Are you ready? In one reference, it was to Abraham. Another, Habakkuk, spoke it. So it was written in the first five books of the Bible. It was written by the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 17. And then it was written about again right here. You know what that statement is? The just shall live by what? By faith. Old Testament, New Testament. It didn't matter when you were born in history. The just have always been justified, not by works, not by obeying the law, but by what? Faith. And so when we say, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Don't ever answer the law because the law never saved anyone. Faith. The cross isn't plan B. The cross was always plan A. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to salvation through a Savior, as far back as Genesis 3, when man sinned. Remember, he said that there was a seed coming, a seed of the woman that would one day crush the head of the serpent. Don't you remember that text? All the way back there, the Messiah in that, that crimson thread, all the way through Scripture, waiting, longing for a sacrifice that could forgive sins. The Old Testament the New Testament are in agreement that the just shall live by faith. It is the only way that a man can be saved. The only difference in the New Testament, rather than this vague understanding of a Messiah that we knew would be a suffering servant, that we knew would be a Jew born into the house of David, there were certain things we even knew where he would be born. But now that the Christ has come, we have an object of our faith, don't we? Very crystal clear. The person of Jesus. And this is where the gospel gets good. But if we see the righteousness of God revealed, then by the time we get to 23, we see that the righteousness of man is rejected. It's not a combination of man's righteousness and God's righteousness that saves us. I want you to always remember it's never Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. Only Christ can save. We bring nothing to the table. We offer nothing that can forgive us and that can, can somehow take away the evil that we've done, the, the sickness that has overcome us. We have no way to be free of this sin that has mastered us. Because it's Jesus alone, not Jesus plus. And when we try to bring our righteousness to God, here is God's answer. It's what we've been looking at. He says that the righteousness of God is faith in Jesus to those who believe. That's the righteousness of God. That's how a man's declared righteous. He says there's no distinction. So he said, let's be clear. Every man who will ever be saved will be saved through faith in Christ. He says, if you're depending on your works, and here's the words that the Apostle Paul finishes with. How many of us have sinned? For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you the definition of what he's trying to say there. You know what he's saying? He's saying that it's an archery term. That word sin, the basic word that we use, literally means to miss the mark. So it's an archery term. 
right in the middle of a target, in a, on, a, on an archer's target, literally, when you think about it, there is this bullseye, but really, even in the midst of that bullseye, there is a dead center to it, right? And if you were off the slightest bit, guess what? You didn't hit the bullseye. And if you're an archer, you know that you can pull that bow back a, a, how many times? And you might be close, but you fall short. You might be close, but you fall short. You might be close, but you fall short. And really, when you think about it, the reality is, how often do we fall short of the target that God has for us, the bullseye? When he says, love even your enemies, anybody ever fall short of that? How about love your wife or your husband? Anybody ever fall short of that? How about even love your children when you want to choke them out, right? And it says, don't exasperate them. Anybody fall short of the target of don't exasperate your children? No, not at all, right? Oh, it doesn't matter what command I give you. If we said don't steal, you're going, well, you know, I'm on the target. I, mean, I never robbed a bank. Well, did you rob a penny bank? Did you take home the pencils from work? Did you cheat the IRS? You ever sit at work and do nothing while they're paying you? That's stealing as much as if you went in and robbed it. You see, when we look at it, the reality is we fall short constantly. We miss the mark over and over and over. And that's why he ties missing the mark for all have sinned. And then he says, and they fall short. Because that idea of falling short means it's, it's like a person who's constantly late. If you're late and you have meetings stacked throughout the day, that once you're late, what begins to happen? You're late for the first one, but then you're later for the second one and later for the third one. Then by the end of the day, you're like, dude, I got to move appointments, right? We want to meet next week. He's saying that's what it's like trying to chase the glory of God. That, that's the standard. That is the measurement by which we will be measured. And he said that we keep falling further and further and further and further away from God's glory and God's perfection. He says that's where every man is. It doesn't matter who you are. And he says, so how could we possibly come to God with our righteousness? Because we really don't have any, do we? And it's rejected because we truly have nothing to give, nothing to offer. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it says we will never be justified according to the law. Verse 21, all the way down, when you look in verse 28, it's there again. Or is God, or I'm sorry, verse 28, for we maintain. What he's saying is we began by saying that the law can't save. And he says over here in chapter 3, verse 28, he says we still maintain the same thing. No one can be saved or justified through the law. Made righteous by the law. It is impossible. And then thirdly, he says the gift of God is displayed. So we have the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. The righteousness of man, the thought that we can do good and, and, and give God something that he will receive, he says that's completely rejected. We sin and we fall short constantly. We can't earn our way to him. But the gift of God, he is about to display for all to see. When it starts in verse 24, listen to these words. He says, all, and I'll go back to 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Jesus. Now, there's a lot there. 
That, that is one beautiful verse that is in Scripture. Because he says, it's not about the works. That's all rejected. But he says, but if you're going to be justified, he said, let me tell you how salvation works. You can't earn it. All you can do is what? Receive it. See, that alone hammers away at the pride of man. We want to earn it. We want to be able to look at God and say, we deserve it. God, give me what is owed me. And there's never a more dangerous place in, <laughs> in God's presence than to stand there and say something foolish like that. What it says is that salvation and being justified, it's a gift. It's a gift. Marcus, if you tried to sell me a car tomorrow, there's selling and then there's gifting me a car, right? There's a difference between the two. If you gift me a car, then I'm going to expect, you know, you're going to bring it by my house tomorrow. You're going to clean it up all shiny, nice, put a bow on it, and it's there. And my thought is, if you gave it to me as a gift, I don't owe you anything, right? So I'm going to be all happy and joyful. I'm going to be driving that thing around, spinning the wheels, right, doing all that stuff. How upset would I be if the next day you walked up and were like, oh, by the way, here is the payment book. It went from being a gift, right? It stopped being a gift in that moment. A gift isn't something you pay for. It's something that has been paid for for you. A gift is something you receive. You don't pay it back. It's offered out of love to you. And that's why the Bible says, for God so loved the world, what did he give us? His only son, the greatest gift he could have ever given us, we were given his son. And it says that this gift is given to us by what? By grace. And that makes sense because a gift, by definition, is something that you don't earn, that you don't deserve. It's given out of love. And it says this gift of Christ has been given by grace. Unmerited, undeserved Though you bring nothing to the table, God says, if you will just believe and trust in the sacrifice that my son made for you, you can be saved. Let that wash over you a second. You want to put but or but do I need to, but don't I have to. You see how you want to do that? You want to add works back to it? He leaves it right there. Justification is a gift. By grace. How do we receive that gift? What, what, how is it paid for? That's the next question, and he answers it. Because he goes on, and, and now he tags this, this very Christian word to it, being justified as a gift by his grace through the what? Through the redemption. Redeemed is a church word. You don't hear it in the world much. Because redeemed simply means to buy back. And it was always used in this culture in reference, usually to the slave market, but not just the slave market. It was also used about the release of, of captured prisoners. You could buy their freedom. Redeemed is a precious word to us as believers because what it means is that though we were sinners... Though we were captive, though we were slaves to sin, and make no mistake, that's exactly what the Bible says about us. That we're hopelessly enslaved. 
Sin has us. If you think that, that you're better than sin or stronger than sin, you, you are sadly mistaken. In your flesh, on your own, without the Spirit of God, you will fall victim to sin over and over and over. How many times have we said, I'll never do that, and what do we do? We do it. And sometimes we've wrestled with it, and we know what we're doing is wrong. It could ruin our life, and we sit there, and we stew, and we stay up at night, and we think about it, and we think about it, and we're so enslaved, even though we know that sin is going to destroy our life. Isn't it amazing how we still do it? Why? Because we're enslaved. Do you know how you got free? Here's the most important point about the gospel. While a gift is free to the one who receives it, it costs the giver everything. You see, when the Bible says we're redeemed, the question comes, well then, what did he give to buy us back? If we were the devils and if we were in our sin and we were living for ourselves, how did God get us out of that and adopt us? <laughs> what was the price that was paid? You know what the Bible says? The Son of God paid with his own blood. Let that sink in. When you wonder, does God love me? I want you to let that sink in. For God so loved you that he sent his son into this world to die for you. So that if you would believe in him, you would be saved. I don't want you to make a mistake in thinking that somehow God just ignored sin. He didn't ignore it. It cost everything. He didn't just say, I'm going to forgive you and act as if it didn't happen. No, no. The, the wage of sin is and always has been death. He doesn't nullify the law as it says at the end of this chapter. God doesn't look at the law and say, well, I said it's going to cost death, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't really mean that. That's, I, that's harsh. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not what he says. That's not what the word of God proclaims. What the word of God proclaims is because of our sin, either we're going to die for it or somebody else has to die in our place. But somebody has to what? Die. Because the wage of sin is death. And so Jesus goes to the cross. He's mocked. He's spit upon. He's beaten. He's whipped until the flesh on his back is just about flayed off of him. He carries a cross to a hill where they nail him to it through his hands and his feet. And he asphyxiates. And they drive a spear into him. And why would he endure that? Because that's what sin costs. That's what the Bible meant when it said the wage of sin is what? Death. And for that moment in time, all of humanity's sin was on Jesus the Christ. And this son who never knew what it was like to be forsaken, who never knew what it was like to have his father turn his back on him because Jesus went to that cross sinless. The sin that was on him wasn't his, it was ours. 
And in that moment, he felt and knew and understood what the wrath of God was. And what was meant for us was poured out on him. Remember in chapter 1, it said the wrath of God is being poured out upon humanity, right? Jesus took the cup and drank from the cup of wrath and God's wrath was poured out on him. Let that sink in. That's the righteousness of God. We're justified by a gift of grace. We're redeemed because of what Christ did. That was the price. And you know what it said? God became, this is an interesting statement, both the just and the justifier. Let me put it to you another way. When it says that God is the just and the justifier, that means that God demonstrated in one moment his love for humanity and his justice. When you look at the cross of Christ, what it screams to us is that we serve a God who will punish sin. He is just. But this God who is just also became what? The justifier. And rather than pouring out that wrath on us, which he could have done, and we would all say he should have done, it wasn't Christ's sin, it was ours. God so loved us that the wrath meant for us was put on him. He became the sacrifice that forgave us of our sins. Isn't that amazing? And so when we look at God, he is both the just and the justifier. The love and justice of God meeting at the cross. Folks, if we diminish the cross, we don't have the gospel anymore. You do realize that. There are some, and you, you'll say, no, that's not true. No, it's absolutely true. There are some that would call themselves Christians that would seek to gut the gospel of the cross. They would say it's too barbaric. That God being loving could never pour out wrath upon his son for someone else's sins. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if you rob the gospel of the cross, you don't have the gospel anymore. Let me give you an example. And folks, this is why we tell you to be careful about what you read and who you read. Because one of the most popular, and I want you to see this, Christian authors. Sold millions of books to Christians. Made a movie and then made a gazillion more off of that movie. The Shack. Let me tell you what the author of the shack said about the cross. Are you ready for this? His name is William Paul Young. He's the author of the shack. He wrote another book called Lies We Believe About God. In that book, this is what he said about Christ's death. Who originated the cross? If God then, or if God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. Who in divine wisdom created a means of torture 
to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility to in any sense. And rightly so, and listen to his words, better know God at all than that God. You see why people get ticked when it ends up on Lifeway's bookshelves? You see where you want to say, well, you know, it's just a little off in theology. I mean, what's the big deal about theology anyways? We all have different beliefs. Folks, that is not the gospel. That will send people directly to hell every single solitary time. If there is no cross, there is no forgiveness. I'm not going to believe Mr. Young. I'm going to believe the Apostle Paul when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, remember the words of Paul, I resolve to know nothing except Christ and Christ what? Crucified. That's it. And when we understand what God did, that word propitiation, I told you, underline it, we'd come back. You know what that simply means? That's how we were redeemed. Propitiation means a sacrifice that turned away God's wrath. That's what the cross was. It paid the debt. The righteous anger that God had towards sin was turned away because the price was paid. And it leaves us with verse 27 through 31. The boasting of man is discounted. Once we see the gift of God displayed and we understand what redemption means and propitiation means and we understand it's a gift and we understand that it's by grace and it comes through faith, once we realize that we have nothing to do with it, you know what the, the end result obviously is? Then we have nothing to boast about. Not in ourselves. The boasting of man is completely discounted all reason for boasting about ourselves it is suddenly destroyed here's what the word discounted means it means that our boasting is unworthy of consideration because it lacks any credibility if the mark is perfection what do i have to brag about I mean, what is the big deal? If salvation, if, if literally salvation meant I had to jump the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, me and my little midget legs, I'm going to run and I'm going to try to jump it, right? I'm probably going to trip and fall and stumble into the canyon, most likely, knowing me. And you're going to all say, what a pitiful soul. Look, he fell and he couldn't make it, right? Okay, fine. Go get Shaquille O'Neal. Go get any athlete, go get LeBron James, go get Michael Jordan, go get anybody you want to get. And guess what? They're going to run and they're going to jump and they're going to make it a whole lot prettier looking than me. But you know what their reality is, right? Where are they? The same exact place that I am. You see, that's what God's saying. What do you have to boast about? At the end... We're all sinners. At the end, we're all hopeless. At the end, if it isn't God doing the work, then we have nothing to boast about. 
Our boasting is in what God has accomplished. If we're going to boast, the Bible says, don't boast in yourself. Boast in what God has accomplished. And let me tell you, that's why we gather. That's why we sing. We boast in this God that took sinful men from around the world. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation... You see, not only do we get right with God when salvation comes and we understand the gospel, but once our relationship with God is right and we realize that there is nothing spectacular about us, we're all sinners, we all fall short, we all are hopelessly lost. It breaks down the divide, not just between us and God, but us and who? Everybody else around us. That's one of the most abhorrent things that people do with the gospel is somehow, even with scripture, they hold on to things like racism. How could there possibly be room for racism in the understanding of who we are without Christ? All of us, the Bible says, there is no distinction between us. It doesn't matter if we're Jew, Gentile. Doesn't matter if we're rich, poor. Doesn't matter where we were born. The reality is, if you are anything, it is because of Christ. And it unifies all of us. Because there's nothing to boast about. He says, where is the boasting? It's excluded. What about the law? What about works? He says, absolutely not. He said, if we boast, it's because of faith. If we boast, it's because of what Christ did on the cross. No man is justified by the law. He justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised. At the end of the day, our boasting is that the hopeless have found hope in another. That's where our boasting is. That the hopeless being us, we boast because we found hope, not in ourselves, but in another. And one of the signs that you get that, that you understand this text, the glory of this text, the beauty of this text. I'll tell you how you recognize whether you get it or whether you need to continue. And be sure that you're preaching the gospel to yourself every day like I've been instructing you to. Because the end result of a person that gets what we just read about this glorious section of Scripture, that's probably one of the most important sections in all the Bible, is when you get the gospel, you can't help but be a worshiper. You don't come to church acting like God owes you something. Because you realize it's a gift. He owes me nothing. If he gave me what he owed me, oh my goodness. When we really get the gospel, we become worshipers. We become grateful. I mean, I want you to think about it for a moment. And if I, was, if I was out in a river and I was drowning, and literally, I mean, you know, I went down the third time, you know, like on the cartoons, man, and I, it's, that's it. I'm not coming up. I'm starting to take on water. I black out. If someone selflessly jumped into that water and saved me and resuscitated me, do you think that I would get up in that moment and just be like, and walk off? What do you think my reaction would be? I would hug them. 
I would be so eternally grateful. I, I would probably spend the rest of my life trying to find ways to say thank you. Not so that they would save me. They already showed their love for me that they did save me. But just out of a grateful heart. I wouldn't be able to get over what they did for me. And the reality is, you know what my other reaction would be? From that time on, for the rest of my life, you know the story I would tell? The day that I was dead and this guy jumped in and saved me. And I would tell you his name and I'd tell you where he lived and I'd tell you what I thought about him. And I wouldn't hesitate to ever tell you about the person that saved me. And you see, that's how you know you get the gospel. Because worship is natural. It's as natural as breathing. Because you realize what he's done. And what you would have without him. Which is nothing. And what you have with him, which is everything. And you wouldn't be able to help but tell people. About this God that changed everything. As Kevin comes this morning, I want to just close with, with another story from... H.A. Ironside, who we talked about last week, but I, I, I have another story that he told that I, I just think greatly tells what we need to understand in this moment today. Because Pastor Ironside, he was a pastor, he was an author. He was speaking at someone else's church. And part of the service, he came across a young man that had been saved and was so excited about his faith. And so he asked the young man to come forward and to share the story of how he was saved. Now, with joy in his heart, the man related how he'd been delivered from a life of sin. He gave the Lord all the credit and all the glory, and he made it clear to everyone that was there that he had done nothing to earn salvation. there was an old deacon in that church who spoke up and he said he didn't fully appreciate the truth that salvation is by grace and faith alone apart from works so he responded to this young man and said you seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you didn't you do your part before God did his see how easy it is to think that I love the young man's response because the young Christian jumped up to his feet and he said, oh yes, I did my part. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took out after me and he ran me down. That was his part. Aren't you glad we serve this God? who is the great hound of heaven, that no matter how far you run, no matter how hopeless you've become, no matter how dark your life is, you turn around and for all your running, he's still right there. He doesn't say good luck getting home to me we find that he left home, he left heaven, and he came to us, and he made a way. And so today, I encourage you, 
If you've never given your life to Christ, today is that moment that you can live under this glorious truth that Jesus saves. And he loves me just as I am. And if I come to him, he changes me. I don't have to change myself because I can't change myself. I'm asking you, God, to do in me what I cannot do for myself. To believe. To have faith. That if we ask him to forgive us and cleanse us and change us, he will. And so we can boldly repent. And turn our life around, not because we have the strength, because we're counting on God to do it in us. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Was buried and rose again, giving you victory over the death and the grave and over your sins? Do you believe that? And probably the most important question is, are you willing to surrender to those truths? To die to yourself and let God have control of your life. For some of you, it's time to stop playing church games. To get serious. And let God do an amazing work in you as you surrender to him. Some of you today may have never heard the gospel. You've heard it today. Jesus is calling you. He's chasing you. He wants to forgive you, and all you have to do is pray and ask him to, and he will. Some of you believers today, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I not preaching the gospel to myself? Because I come in here and my worship's dead, and my heart is dry. Maybe you've forgotten just how glorious your salvation was, just how loved you are. Maybe you've forgotten this God who sees you and knows you and yet still loves you and will give anything to walk with you. Where's your passion for the lost? Do you want to tell the story? If it's not there, why? Maybe you need to preach the gospel to yourself again and remember who he is and what he's done. Father, we come to you in this moment and we ask you, to move and to change. Lord, do in us what we can't do for ourselves. Lord, nowhere in your word did you ever tell us that you help those who help themselves. That's what the devil would tell us. Lord, the truth is you help those who have no help, no hope of helping themselves. You come to the weary, to the wounded, to the broken, to the enslaved, to those lost in darkness, Lord, and you bring light and life and liberty. And Father, I pray that today someone right where they're seated would pray to receive you as Lord and Savior, would surrender and follow you and believe on you. And Lord, that today they would have the courage while Kevin and others sing to just come forward and say, Pastor Aaron, I've given my life to Christ. I want to be part of this fellowship. I want to obey Christ and be baptized. Lord, may someone today during this invitation give their life to you. And Lord, for those of us that believe, Lord, if our hearts have grown cold, if life has burdened us to the point that we can't see the light of your grace anymore and the joy that comes from receiving this gift, then God, stir our hearts again.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.